Paul had a heart, like a, like a genuine heart for God's people. He had a heart for the elect. He didn't just see people around the world. He saw the elect of God, potentially those who are future elect and those who are currently elect. He had a heart for God's people because he had a heart for God. He had a love for God. Therefore, he had a heart for God's people. This is what we see over and over again. This letter to the church in Corinth is first and foremost a heart letter. It is a heart letter from Paul to this body. He's exposing his heart. He's wearing his heart on his sleeve, so to speak. The question is, is how does one get that kind of heart? When you take, like, uh, when you take like, account of your life and the way you love and what you love and how you love, do you love like that? Do you see people the way Paul clearly sees people? Do you see the body the way Paul clearly sees the body? I mean, the kind of heart that doesn't just write off somebody, especially a fellow believer, because they sinned against you. It doesn't just write them off, push them aside, keep them at arm's length. The kind of heart that doesn't shake the dust off your feet at someone who has falsely accused you, which is what was happening here. A heart that loves unconditionally the bride of Christ, that loves the bride because Christ loves his bride, and you love Christ. I'm talking about a heart that longs for fellowship, like genuine fellowship, unity, solidarity, like-mindedness, reconciliation, Oneness, just as Jesus prayed for. When you hear Jesus pray for one-mindedness and oneness within the people who had come to know him, you think, that's me. I don't have that as much as I should. How does one get it? How does one replace a heart of selfish ambition and loner mentality? That's what we're talking about. The opposite of what Jesus prayed for was selfish ambition and loner mentality. How does one get that heart? Just for, just for sake of showing you what I'm talking about, I want you to read just a few verses from 2 Corinthians that Paul says to this church. We read this one last, last time, but if we are, for 2 Corinthians 1.6, he says, But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort. Willing to go through affliction for them. 2 Corinthians 12, 15 said, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. His ambition was for them. His ambition was for the gospel. His ambition was for the church. His ambition and love was for the people of God. And 2 Corinthians 2, 4, the last verse of our our passage today says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have for you. I mean, I could go on and on and on with examples of how Paul continuously talked about his love for this church and other churches, for people, for their souls. I mean, what is it that produces a heart like that? It just loves people more than himself, specifically within the body 
is it not, is it not the fellowship? Is it not the fellowship of his grace that produces that heart? Is it not the grace of God that produces that kind of heart that loves as he loves? And mostly, is it not the grace of God in your life that produces a heart that loves who he loves? To see people the way God sees people. The way to see the bride of Christ the way Christ sees his bride. Takes grace. Takes grace for a heart to not get offended, overly offended, and to to have forgiveness and not hold grudges and not have resentment that breaks fellowship. Takes a heart of grace, understanding grace in your life. Is it not the faithfulness of God revealed to us in Christ that produces in us a love and faithfulness to Him and therefore His blood bought people? A faithfulness to love God's elect. Even those who have not shown that they are elect yet. People, God has a people that are for himself all over the world that don't even know it yet, but they're his. And you love them too. And he has people in this body here who have been elect and sanctified and plucked out, and drawn to himself, and bought with a price. And how do you see the people in this body? Do we see each other the way God sees one another? Will you pursue one another as God has pursued you? So with that, our main point today is this. God's yes to us in Christ results... And our yes to him and one another. God's yes to us in Christ results in our yes to him and to one another. So let's pray. As we go to God's word this morning, let's pray that God would implant the truth in our heart that makes us like that. Father, you are so merciful and gracious, and we we know this because of Christ. Oh God, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, reveal your word to us today. The eyes would be opened to the way you see us, to the way you see your church. I pray, God, that the magnitude of your mercy and grace we have in Christ would have such an effect on our lives that we have hearts that are growing in affections for you and therefore your people. We come to you, Lord, as needy people, fleshly people, people who are unable to do anything of any eternal value on our own, but in Christ, in Christ in us, Lord, you can accomplish so much. And we're just thankful, Lord, that you are willing to use even us. Be with us this morning, Lord. Let this not just be a ritual morning. Let this not just be a time of gathering and listening to someone talk 
Let the power of your spirit, O God, move in the hearts of your people and in mine. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we are in verse 12. Okay, we're going to take about a few minutes to read through the whole passage, and then we're going to just kind of go through it verse by verse. Okay, starting in verse 12, he says this, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand till the end, just as you partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. In this confidence, I intended at first to come to you so that you might twice receive a blessing. That is, to pass your way into Macedonia and then again from Macedonia to come to you and by you be, to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or what purpose do I purpose according to the, to the, do I purpose according to the flesh so that with me there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who is preached among you by us, by me and Sylvanius and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes. Therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our heart as a pledge. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but our workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. But I determined for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad but the one whom I made sorrowful? This is the very thing I wrote to you, so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy would be the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. This is God's word to us this morning. May we have hearts ready to receive it. So for the sake of context and understanding what Paul is talking about, <laughs> I want to give a little refresher on what his history has been with this church. He's had a bit of a roller coaster history with this body, okay? Uh, so a little refresher. We understand that Paul first visits Corinth uh, in his second missionary journey. We can, we can read about this in Acts 18. He goes to the synagogues. He gets kicked out of the synagogues. And he dusts his feet off of the synagogues and says, I'm, what? I'm going to the Gentiles. So he goes to the Gentiles, and lo and behold, Gentiles are getting saved. And so the church in Corinth is born. 
Okay, so the church is established, and he stays with them for a year and a half, which was a long time to stay with one person or one people, especially when you're thinking, I got to get going. I got to get moving. Think about that. He's wanting to get the gospel to the world. He stays with them a year and a half. That's love. This wasn't the only people he did this with, and this wasn't the longest he has stayed with people. This is just what Paul did. And so after leaving Corinth, after a year and a half, Paul hears of sexual immorality within the church, and so he writes them a letter, one we don't have today, just addressing this one issue. But then he later receives a letter back from Corinth, talking about fractions in the church, some additional sexual morality, and they have some questions. And so from that, Paul responds with 1 Corinthians, which we have preserved for us today. So he responds out with 1 Corinthians. And then Paul, we get from 1 Corinthians 4, 17 and, and 1 Corinthians 16, that Paul is going to send Timothy to kind of check on them. Since writing 1 Corinthians, he goes to check on them. And we don't know who he heard this from, but it would make sense that he heard from Timothy that there's been an infiltration of false teachers. So now we got, we got more problems in Corinth. <laughs> now we got now we got false teachers coming in, and they are dividing the congregation. They are falsely accusing Paul of things. They are uh, cutting him down. They are basically trying to discredit Paul, and therefore the gospel. And so Paul visits again, and we see this in chapter two of the, our text today. He visits them again, and this is referred to as a sorrowful visit. This is like an emergency visit. And there was a sorrowful visit because he went to Corinth to try to address the issue of the false teachers, and apparently almost the whole church has just been turned against him. And at least one of them, at least, outed him in public. And so it broke his heart. So he left, apparently unsuccessful. But after leaving, he writes them what we learned about today is a sorrowful letter or a severe letter. And he was supposed to, as he planned to, as he talks about in this, he was supposed to go back to Corinth on his way to Macedonia and then come back again on his way back to Judea. But he decided to skip them and go to Macedonia because he wanted them to repent. And we'll read about that a little bit later. But he was ready, ready, waiting for them to repent. But in Macedonia, he hears they have repented. Titus delivers to him good news that they have repented and so now we have 2 Corinthians. He pens 2 Corinthians a response, really, to their repentance as a church. And so here in verse 12, Paul looks like he's starting to begin a defense of himself. Again, he's, he's defending himself. So you might wonder, wait, I thought they repented. What's the need for defense? Why the need to defend himself if they've repented? And so we should understand that, yes, there is repentance in, within the church but we have every indication from this letter to believe that there are still false teachers present in the body. They're still causing trouble. So even though there's been a massive repentance, there's still false teachers and they're still having some influence. And he's going to address them quite harshly and somewhat, I kind of like this, sarcastically in chapter 10 and 11. And so he's going to deal with them. And so we should understand that Paul's aim here in this text, really in the first five or six chapters, is not, he's not trying to be defensive. He's not addressing like the church's accusation of him. He's being defensive, trying to get his way back in. He's already back in. But what he's actually trying to do is strengthen their defense of him 
in the midst of, the, of the, all the false teachers still there. He wants to strengthen their defense of his apostleship and the message that they've been preaching in Corinth, namely the gospel. He wants to strengthen them in that and therefore strengthen their defense of the gospel. And we get that from chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. So we finally get to chapter 12, or I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 12, and we see why Paul is constantly bringing up more defenses against the accusations against him. He's establishing for this church a defense of his apostleship and the gospel. It's out of love. His motivation is love. His motivation is their joy, their faith, the building of them up. That's what his desire is. And so the, that is really the key to understanding what in the world Paul is talking about here after, after reading this text. That his motivation is love. Love for this church. He, is, he desires for them to remain strong against the divisive works of these false teachers, against the divisive works of the enemy. He wants them to stay strong against those spreading rumors, against false accusations. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to discredit him and therefore the gospel. And so out of love for them, out of a desire for unity, out of a love for Christ, out of a love for the gospel, out of a desire for fellowship, Paul wants to ensure that the rebellion would not happen again. And so he defends himself. And so we begin our text in verse 12. And our, our first sub-point today is this. Our boast, our boast is actually in one another. Our boast is in one another. Verse 12 says this, For, out of, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. Paul starts by reminding this church that we, and he, by we he means Paul, Silvanus, another name for Silvanus is Silas. You might see those interchangeable throughout Scripture. But Paul, Silas, and Timothy says, we were faithful to you. When we were with you, we were, we were faithful to you. We walked only in the grace of God with you. Meaning that while we were with you, we took nothing from you. We took no money from you. We, we came and we actually, we built tents. We, we made our own wage so, we, so that we could serve you. We didn't have any fleshly ambitions or ulterior motives. We did nothing, nothing of the sort. And you know that. You know this. But, but in our conscience, he appeals to his conscience, which is his harshest judge. For those who are walking with the Lord, for those whose heart is sensitive, God He's given us each a conscience that if it's not seared, it is our harshest judge. And Paul appeals to the harshest judge he knows, his own conscience, and says, in my conscience, we desire to fellowship with you with pure motives. This word, at the beginning of verse 12, proud confidence, uh, the word means boasting. He's basically saying, in our he says, for our, for our boast is this, and, or our accomplishment is this. And it's a bit of tongue-in-cheek here as he's kind of getting after some of the false teachers there. 
He's getting after a bit of the culture of the church here because this is what the church in Corinth loved, people that boasted in themselves. They loved people that were proud of themselves, exalted themselves, boasted in themselves. This was a very attractive quality to them, which is exactly why these false teachers who would be able to come in and say, look how great I am and look how meager Paul is, they would say, makes sense. Makes sense. This is why they love these false teachers, because they loved a culture of self-boasting. And so Paul's using this word a bit tongue-in-cheek. But we know this is not how Paul is using the word, because we understand from 1 Corinthians 1, he said this, God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, so that no human can boast before God. No human can boast in themselves before God, but rather, if anyone should boast, they must boast in the Lord. So instead, Paul is saying, our boasting, if we're going to boast, if you like people who boast, listen to me boast, okay? Our boast, if anything, is in our only our integrity towards you and the way that we loved you and served you and treated you, by which was only supplied by God's grace. We only walked in the grace of the Lord. It's, it's all supplied by God's grace. All we preach is God's grace. And the only way we live is by God's grace. And all we have written to you is Christ crucified for you, which is just grace, grace, grace. That's all we've preached. That's all we've said among you is Christ crucified for you, risen for you. And so we love you and we serve you as Christ has served you. This is all you've witnessed. That's where he continues to say in verse 13, for we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. I don't, I don't act in a different way than I wrote to you. I wrote gospel to you. I lived gospel to you. We preached gospel to you when we were there. And he's, and he's saying that, yes, the gospel is all we boast in. It's the God of the gospel. That's who we boast in. It's the work of the gospel in you that we boast in. That's it. You understood it, and I hope you'll continue to grasp it all the way to the end, the gospel we preach to you. Verse 14, he says this, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud or boast. We are your reason to be proud as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus, in the day that the Lord returns. I'm your reason to be proud. You're mine. Meaning that in the day of the Lord, we will be boasting in the work of the gospel and how God used our fellowship as a means of the gospel's work in one another's lives. That hit me. As I meditated on that and I thought about what it would be like when the Lord returns and he, and he brings us home, that in the day of the Lord, when he calls you home, it is you and the Lord's work in you that I got to bear witness to in this life that I will boast in. It's you that if I'm so privileged 
If I'm so privileged, God will use me to strengthen your faith and hope and comfort in Christ. And God will use you for me and he will use you for one another. Look around. This is who you're boasting in in eternity. It's in this and really in, the, in this work of the gospel in one another's lives, supplied by grace through the church that we will boast. God, God pours out his grace on us through the church. He supplies the comfort and the sanctification, all the means of grace, the word preached, the word sung, the encouragement, the comfort, the direction, the eyes focused on Christ. The work of the Spirit is working through Spirit-filled people to encourage everybody to look to Christ. It is in that, in the day of the Lord, I will look at you and say, praise God. And you'll look at me and say, praise God. And you'll look at one another and you'll say, praise God. Our boast is in one another. So basically, Paul is saying that we came, okay? We came to you. We preached the gospel to you. We served you. You've been praying for us, right? You received us in the gospel we preach. There's fellowship here. There's, there's oneness here. There's like-mindedness here in the gospel. We have an eternal fellowship with one another in the gospel. And that goes for CBC too. Let that simmer just for a minute. We have an eternal fellowship with one another in the gospel and the work of the gospel in our lives as the church produces that work through the power of the Spirit. I mean, it's just amazing. We get to do this. And so it was in this fellowship, okay, verse 15, he says this, in this confidence I intended at first to come to you. So you could twice receive a blessing. That is, I wanted to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia come back to you and get help by you to go to Judea. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? What purpose, or what do I... Or what I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh? So with me, there will be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Point two. Point two, our fellowship that we have here in this body, our fellowship can be destroyed by gossip. Our fellowship here can be destroyed by gossip. Paul, in a very reasonable confidence or a confidence that he had in the fellowship that he had with them, that's what he's, that's what he's appealing to is the fellowship they had with one another. He said, in the confidence I had in our fellowship, I had every intention of coming to see you twice. I love you so much. I don't get a lot of time here. I've got a lot of places to go. I've got a lot of people to see, a lot of churches to establish. I want to see you twice. That's how much I care about you. That's how much I love you. But... Paul does not come. He does not come on the first round, and we all see his motivation for not coming later, but it is here we see what really the accusation against Paul primarily is and what accusation he's addressing. You can hear it now, right? Oh, this Paul. What a vacillator. I don't know about this Paul. He's kind of iffy. 
He's a little, he's a little undependable, this Paul. He says, says one thing and means another. He said he was coming. Now he didn't come. He must have had something better come up. He didn't really love you that much. He, had, he loves his plans and he loves himself and something better came up that suited him more. So that's why he didn't come. You can hear it, right? It's all, it's all circulating around the church. It's planted by these false teachers. But basically they're saying this Paul cannot be trusted. But Paul's asking them, has this been your experience with me? Has this been your experience with me? Do you, will you really break fellowship with me on the words of these accusers when you know I have never treated you this way? You know in your own conscience I've never treated you this way. Does my yes really mean no? Is that the experience you have with me when I visited you? Is that what you experienced in the letters I wrote you? And there is a lesson here for the church at large. I mean, the damage that can be done with gossip is sometimes insurmountable. The way a word here or there about another person can kind of, kind of construe a thought in someone else's head about that person, it almost is unchangeable sometimes. It can be done through assigning motive to someone without knowing all the facts. And that's really what happens when we gossip. We talk about what somebody did and really why they did it. And we assign motive to somebody based off maybe one fact, if it's a fact at all. Gossip kills this fellowship, this oneness that Jesus prayed for. And so does self-gossip. There is a such thing as self-gossip. I mean the conversations we have with even ourselves about what a person did or didn't do. One text message not returned. They don't show up. They're not here as often as I think they should be. They spend their money the way I don't think they should. You name it. You start telling yourself all kinds of things about people and you assign motive to people that you have no idea what you're talking about. And you construe in your mind something about that person and all of a sudden, fellowship's broken. It's not as it should be. You're not one as you should be. How quickly we can write someone off because of gossip or even self-gossip and how quickly this church was ready to write Paul off because they assumed he didn't love them anymore. Like, what? Everything he did? Assigning false motives to people, it, it, it clouds everything you know about them previously, and you're judging on one linear moment in time. They assumed that he didn't love them anymore because of the gossip in the church. And yes, this gossip was purposely planted by false teachers, but it can be impurposely planted by one another as well. We must be careful. They let the facts of one fact sway their hearts away from him and break fellowship with him, and they begin to trust these false teachers instead. And so Paul, his defense, he appeals to the only thing he knows. He appeals to the only thing he knows he can place his confidence in, and he appeals to the gospel, to the rich, foundational, rock-solid gospel. I love that Paul can't get away from theology. 
This is one of the, kind of these things I've noticed throughout this book is as he defends himself, the, he starts to use theology to defend himself. And so it's almost as if the, the chapter is not even really about the theology, but the theology is defending his main point. Because when Paul speaks, when Paul pours out his heart, it's all rooted and grounded in who God is and therefore who he is. We can't get away from it. He just can't get away from theology and who God has changed him to be. And so when Paul shares his heart, the gospel that changed his heart, it just pours out. Love this about Paul. Love this about Paul. And so point three today is this, that we are bound in Christ. We are bound in Christ. Verse 18, Paul began to defend his heart. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Sylvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes in him. For as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is all amen to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is God. He sealed us and gave us the spirit in our hearts as a pledge. He's saying, saying this, listen, we, we preach to you. We preach to all of you. Sylvanius, Timothy, myself, we all, though individuals, were unified in one message around one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. We preached Christ to you. We preached Christ crucified to you. We preached sins forgiven in Christ. We did not say that Jesus is both yes and no to you. We did not say that, well, maybe your sins are forgiven and maybe they're not. Our gospel message was not flighty. Our gospel message is not iffy. It's solid, true. Our gospel message was not wishy-washy. Our gospel message was not fleshly or self-serving. It was the opposite of all of that. In fact, our gospel message was just this. Yes. Yes in Jesus Christ. And that's it. In fact, he goes on to say that all the promises of God. How many? All the promises of God are absolute, 100%, rock solid and true for you in Jesus Christ. If your faith is in Christ, meaning you've placed your trust in him, his character, who he is, his work on the cross for you, then you have, as it were, in your account, every blood-bought promise of God deposited into your account. It's yours. This means that every promise God has made, you can rest. You can rest assured that the answer to each and every promise is yes. Yes to you, but only through Christ. Only through Christ. This is how the believer lives and breathes. This is how we walk the walk of faith. It is by Taking moment by moment, step 
by step, minute by minute, saying, yes, Lord, your promises are true. Yes, I will trust you. Yes, you said this is true. I believe it. I'm walking by faith. This is what it means to walk by faith. It is to take every single moment that's coming ahead of you as saying, the promise is true. The promise is true. The promise is true. So that means you've got to know his promises. Get to know your God and his promises that are available to you in Christ. They are yours. If I filled your account with a billion dollars, you never accessed one dollar of it. How foolish would that be? His promises is what sustains us, comforts us. This is why prayer is such a glorious act of faith. Prayer is withdrawing. It is withdrawing from the bank account of God's promises for you. It's reaching in, as it were, through prayer to say, Lord, I need this promise to be true and believing it is. It's resting in and acting on the promises of God as absolutely unwavering and always yes in Christ. Meaning that Jesus, Jesus is God's yes to me. Therefore, if I, need, if I want to access those promises, there's no other way but by prayer. So a small view of God and his promises equals a small prayer life. High view of God and his promises and your dependency upon them equals a fervent prayer life. In Christ, church, in Christ, God says, yes, your sins are forgiven. 100%. Past, present, future, in Christ, in Christ alone, every sin you have ever committed and will commit is forgiven. God, am I forgiven? Yes, in Christ. Yes. God says, yes, I love you in Christ. I love you, he says. Yes, I'll never leave you. Yes, I hear you when you pray. Yes, I will complete my work in you. Yes, I will set you free. Yes, I care about your needs. Yes, I will give you wisdom if you ask for it. Yes, I will comfort you in your suffering. Yes, I will give you courage to fight for my name's sake. Yes, I will give you courage to do things you never thought possible. Yes, I will wipe every tear away. Yes, I will bring you into my presence forever and ever and ever. Yes, I will conform you into my image. Yes, I will bless the nations. Yes, I will build my church. Yes, the word shall never return void. Yes, 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 I will keep all my promises to you who are in Christ because Christ is in you. And to that, we, in unified voice, say amen. We, in unified voice, say amen, or yes, back to God. That's what amen means. Amen means it truly, truly. Yes, Lord, you can do what you have promised. That's why we say amen at the end of a prayer. It's not just a period at the end of a prayer. You can say amen throughout the whole thing and still keep praying. Amen does not signify just the end of a prayer. It is the confession that what God has promised, he is able and faithful and willing to do for you because of Jesus.
This is why we say in Jesus' name, amen, because those promises are only accessed through Christ. And that's why we know the answer is yes, but it is not just yes for you. It is not just yes for you. It is also our yes to one another. For if God is for me in Christ, and all the promises of God are yes to me in Christ, that means all of God's promises are yes to you in Christ. Which means then how much more, if I love God and I know God loves me, how much more should I be for you in Christ? And vice versa. This, this really is Paul's argument. Are we getting to see how Paul is defending himself now? He's saying, he's saying, don't you remember the gospel? Don't you remember the gospel? Oh, oh, you just see, like you little silly Corinthians, that the gospel that you received and believed and held as true when I was with you, that if you reject the one whom God has sent to you, then you reject his gospel also that you claim to know and love. But also, can't you see that because God says yes to you, so do I. If God says yes to you, so do I. That because God has purchased you with his precious blood and loves you, then so do I. Because we were bought together. It says here, Verse 22, he says, he establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us as God and sealed us and gave us. We were bought together. We were established together. We were anointed unto a purpose as the church together. We, we, we were sealed. We were given a spirit as a pledge we, my brothers and sisters, we are bound in Christ, one Lord, one faith, one spirit, one baptism, all of us one in these things, and nothing can separate that. So as long as Christ is yes for you, then so do I say yes to you. As long as Christ promises, I will never disown you, so I will say, I will never disown you. But this is what the enemy wants us to do. He wants to get us to disown one another. He'll nullify grace to do it. He will nullify grace. He'll plant in our heads and our minds and appeal to our flesh and say, maybe God is not for us. Maybe God wants you to do more to earn his promises. They're not really yes for you until you do this. He'll nullify grace, which are lies from the pit of hell. And when grace is nullified, it's easy to divide because we become individuals and not one in that truth. And Paul is pleading, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. See God's yes to you in Christ as yes to us, to one another. And he's saying to this church, commit to be like God. This, it's like if we love someone, don't you want to be like them? My kids like some things that, that I like. I don't even know why they like it. They just do because I do. This is how we are with our Heavenly Father. So we want to be like Him who says yes in Christ to His bride, and therefore so do we.
And so Paul continues and he tells us now why he didn't come. His motivation for not coming says in verse 23, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I didn't come again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but are workers with you for your joy, for in your faith you are standing firm. He wanted to spare them heartache. He's already caused it once. He already came in heartache himself. And so to spare them more heartache, he decides to be patient. He says what he needs to say. He trusts the Lord with their repentance, and he decides to be patient and wait for their repentance after the sorrowful letter. He says that he's not, he's not desiring to dictate their faith, but rather in love, he wants to work with them. He wants to come alongside them. Be a paraclete, one who comes alongside for their joy, for their comfort. He just wants to pursue them the way God pursues him. He just wants to love them the way God loves them because he wants their faith to be on rock-solid foundation. And then in chapter 2, we will touch on, again on this a bit next week, but we will leave it here for now to say that the reason Paul wrote all that he wrote, namely the sorrowful letter, was not to make them sorrowful, but to lead them to repentance, again, where real joy is found. And that is how Paul has demonstrated his love for them. So, so what? Now what? What do we do with this? How do we as a body respond to a passage like this? I just want to give us an encouragement today. Determine in your heart to be a person of prayer. Don't let days go by when you haven't prayed. Don't let hours go by when you haven't talked to the Lord. Determine in your heart to be a person of prayer. Again, a small view of God and his promises equals a small prayer life. But if we truly, getting back to the first question I asked at the beginning of this message, if we truly desire to be like God more than we are today, if we truly desire to love as God loves we truly desire to have that kind of heart that just loves people and loves God's people, the more we desire to see the body as God sees the body, the more we will pray. The more we will pray and seek God's yes in Christ to us, namely the yes he, he promised to conform you into his image and to make you like him. We must be a people who are regularly on our knees before God, pleading Him to shape our hearts. Don't think you can leave here today thinking, yeah, I'm just going to be a better Christian. I'm just going to do it better. Starting tomorrow. Monday is a good day to start things, right? Starting tomorrow, we're gonna, I'm going to get this thing together. No. We're going to bow our heads today. As soon as this is over and during communion, you have every opportunity to pray, God, change my heart. Don't let a moment go by where flesh rules in any way for another minute. Pray for heart 
Pray for a heart of fellowship with one another. Pray for, pray for a desire to truly be one within this body. Remove from me, O oh God, any individualism. Remove from me, O oh God, anything that is separate from your plan, which is the church. I want to be a part of your plan, God. Remove from me individualism. Two, I would think it would be a good idea to pray for God to protect this body from the attacks of the enemy through gossip with solid footing on his promises. Pray for that. As you read your Bible, pray for eyes to see promises. They're, they're like little treasures of promises that aren't overly explicit, but when you're looking for promises, there's these little treasures of promises throughout all of Scripture. So pray for eyes to see those promises and to know that they are yes for you in Christ and yes to your brother and yes to your sister. And lastly, number not lastly, two more. Number four, pray for eyes to see one another as God's blood bought. Pray that we would see other people in this room as God sees them. Pray that you would see brothers and sisters even all over the world who are suffering as God's blood-bought people. Pray that you would see even those who don't believe yet, but God says, I have, Jesus said, I have sheep that have another fold. I must go to them. He's going to them through you. Pray that you'd love people like that. Lastly, pray that we would see past half-truths. And not apply motive to another person's heart. But as 1 Corinthians 13 says, pray that you would believe all things, hope all things, and love one another in this way. And all God's people said, yes, Lord, you can do it. All right? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promises. We thank you, Lord, that not only have you promised, Lord, but you are faithful, Lord, to, and, more, and powerful and able to complete every promise you've ever made. And we look to Christ and say, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. He did it in Christ. He'll do it again and again and again and again. Oh, God, give us a heart that just is so in love with you and your promises that they sustain us, they keep us, and let us walk by faith as a church in these rock-solid promises. Amen.